0: Good day, you're listening to Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph in GeoGiage, Montreal. Thanks for joining us. This is the 141st edition of the show. On the broadcast today, I'm going to be sharing a conversation I had with Lim Li Ching from the Third World Network. That is a global um, réseau, a network of activists and researchers around the world who are doing work related to biotechnology development, uh, north-south issues, an excellent initiative that dates back many years. Uh, They were present at the COP15 summit in Montreal, that is the UN Biodiversity uh, Conference that took place. And uh, despite all the reporting about the meetings um, around COP15 and the biodiversity protocols, that took place in Montreal there was very little details about what went down in the negotiations. Lim was there and I spoke with her about some of the uh, issues that were raised. Uh, we looked at the ways that historic structural injustices on a global level related to legacies of colonialism um, are manifested through issues like uh, compounding debt and payment Uh, of the interest on debt, uh, particularly within many nations where biodiverse habitats are uh, still found. Um, This was a key issue in the context of the COP15 biodiversity negotiations uh, as um, Third World Network and others were calling for debt relief as a way to boost financial capacities of nations to protect biodiversity. Um, we also talk about offsets, critically looking at the ways that issues such as biodiversity offsets or carbon offsets um, were pushed by Western countries, mainly in the context of these negotiations around the biodiversity protocol at the COP15 meetings in Montreal, uh, specifically the idea that a corporation or a government would be allowed to destroy a biodiversity habitat by delegating funds to protect another. Uh, obviously, a very deeply problematic idea. Lim Li Ching of the Third World Network details what went down during negotiations. She was there and uh, in the thick of debating brackets uh, around what would be included uh, in this protocol. So here's our conversation on Free City Radio. First of all, just introduce yourself yeah. and your organization and why why you were here at, at the mm-hmm. Summit on Biodiversity.
1: Okay. Hi, my name is Lim Lee Ching. Um, I work with the Third World Network, which is an international policy, advocacy, and research NGO based in Malaysia. Um, TWN, we have been following these negotiations on the convention in the Convention on Biological Diversity, really since its birth at the uh, Rio Earth Summit uh, in 1992, the UN Conference on Environment and Development. So we've been following the the talks uh, over the last thirty years. Um,
0: That's a great uh, scope of time to really think about what's happened, and I, I you know seeing the demonstrations here and sort of the um, protests that talked about the link between colonial legacies of violence and the contemporary realities of climate injustice and the structural issues um, Mm -hmm. internationally. I, I know that on a fundamental level a lot of the work you do is trying to look at this but like in very specific terms in terms of the negotiations around the protocol. Can you maybe for people unfortunately who might be following CBC, for example, there is very few examples of talking about the specifics. So could you talk a little bit about some of the debates that you were involved in around this uh, protocol and how it speaks to these more global systemic issues?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously when we look at the biodiversity and climate crisis that the world is facing today, uh, we know that primary root cause is the unjust system of uh, extraction uh, that occurs uh, in the world today, of overconsumption, largely in the global north, as well as by elites in the south, of course. Uh, but that is a system rooted in colonial histories of injustice, of resource extraction, of violence and uh, against Indigenous peoples and local communities. Um, and so if we have discussions, as we've had here in Montreal, for a new global biodiversity framework that is supposed to address the, the, the cause of biodiversity loss, but we have, I regrettably, the results to us are not transformative because they do not address the structural causes mm. of biodiversity loss. What they are addressing are many of the symptoms of biodiversity loss. And of course, while well, that helps. Mm-hmm. And of course, there there is at the moment, um, good strong language in the framework regarding rights, rights of indigenous peoples and local communities, uh, gender equality, uh, recognizing the role of women, of youth, particularly of I, uh, indigenous peoples, uh, in playing their role in conserving and sustainably using biodiversity. But to us, if, For one, of course, we will have to hold governments accountable to these nice words they've put on paper to make sure that at the national level, on the ground, that these uh, lofty commitments they've, they've made to protect the rights of Indigenous peoples and local communities are actually realised uh, in our own countries back home. Mm-hmm. That's one. Secondly, a lot of the targets uh, in the global biodiversity framework, as yet, um, we feel do not go far enough. Mm. They do not, for example, Mm -hmm. put stringent regulation on corporations, which are a major Mm -hmm. profiteer of the system uh, of economic injustice. And thirdly, particularly in the target around financial resources, Mm -hmm. we see an invitation, actually, Mm -hmm. to corporations Through words that talk about leveraging private finance, blended finance, opening the door to market-based mechanisms such as biodiversity offsets and credits, this is just a a door uh, to open the CBD uh, to these sorts of things. I mean, of course, these things are happening anyway, uh, but to have them written into the global biodiversity framework, uh, we feel is actually a rollback and uh, would make struggles on the ground even more difficult. So while we have some good language, and and we do celebrate uh, with our Indigenous brothers and sisters for working so hard and getting this strong language on their rights into the global biodiversity framework, we fear that the structural issues, if not addressed, will actually undermine uh, this good work. Mm
0: -hmm. You talk about doors to offsets and I think people might uh, make a connection, rightfully so, to carbon offsets, right? Can you just draw that out a little bit for, for why that is that problematic? And that was not focused on in the reporting about the negotiations in Montreal. So can you just please uh, share a bit about that?
1: Well, I think there's, you know, there's um, in terms of offsets, of course, uh, people uh, may be more familiar with the carbon offsets and the carbon markets, as, as you've mentioned. Uh, and this is what we see coded, actually, in the term nature-based solutions, which has made it into the global biodiversity framework. Uh, it's been qualified a little bit, uh, and there has been a strong push from developed countries, particularly Uh, yes, um, the Western, you know, developed countries to say that this is going to help us. And nature-based solutions sounds nice, but it's actually, in our view, pretty poorly defined and could mean anything to anyone. There is a resolution uh, that was taken under the United Nations Environment Assembly, uh, which puts forth a definition which is very wide and still in our view, uncertain. But there's nothing that has been defined under this convention, the CBD. And the UNEA resolution actually sets up a process by which uh, more work should be done to clarify what this means. So we feel it's not something that's ready to be imported wholesale into the Convention on Biological Mm -hmm. Diversity. So right now we have language in the Global Biodiversity Framework and throughout uh, several decisions of um, the convention. That talk about nature-based solutions and slash or ecosystem-based approaches.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the latter term has a much more uh, is much more defined. There's been a lot of work in the CBD on this and in other fora. Uh, it's understood uh, much better and clearer. And also, you know, would have um, the, the the key thing is that we need to ensure that this does not affect uh, the peoples who stand to lose out from this. Because what it basically means, firstly in terms of carbon offsets, is that it allows the fossil fuel majors to get away with it because they have this idea that they can compensate their existing emissions of fossil fuels by in the offset market, right? Mm-hmm. But first of all, we know that this is not possible because the only way to reduce emissions is to stop emitting is not to try and compensate it off by saying that nature will absorb all this carbon. Secondly, um, the, the scientific for, basis for this is questionable
0: mm-hmm.
1: because while nature, of course, and biodiversity plays a critical role mm-hmm. in absorbing carbon, the time scales are different, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You cannot compare the ge- geological carbon cycle with the terrestrial carbon cycle. What is emitted and is up in the atmosphere will remain into the, in the atmosphere for hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of years.
0: Yeah.
1: So and finally, we fear that because then this will depend then on land, right? We need the Correct. area to be able to absorb all this carbon. And the fact is that all the pledges that governments have made on land-based carbon removals... Uh, I've been involved in a recent report called the Land Gap Report, Mm -hmm. which has made this calculation. And basically, the amount of land that's going to be needed uh, to actually absorb all this carbon that is in the atmosphere Mm -hmm. is way, way more than what we have available, right? So there's going to be a problem. Then there will be conflicts in terms of which lands, whose lands, what will be the impact of Indigenous peoples and local communities uh, if all this land is set aside for carbon removals? Will they be dispossessed? Will they be kicked out of their lands and territories? Mm-hmm. Because we say, well, you know, Total you know, is, is, is going to plant trees in your land because they are trying to offset their continued fossil fuel emissions. So that's the carbon mark, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the kind of the gist of it. So we also have this concept now that has unfortunately uh, got into the um, global biodiversity framework of biodiversity offsets and Mm -hmm. credits, Mm -hmm. which is basically also the idea that if we destroy nature in one place Mm -hmm. or an ecosystem in one place and species, we can somehow offset that by protecting it in another place. Now, of course, as we know if we lose if a species goes extinct it goes extinct you can't replace it with another species mm-hmm. if an ecosystem is destroyed it's destroyed mm-hmm. so what we're trying they're trying to do is to say that well if we protect another equivalent area somewhere else then that's okay and let's offset that and create perhaps market mechanisms uh, to deal with it and to trade in the credits right mm-hmm. but again we have the same issues because mm-hmm. they're land based They will likely impact local communities and indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just really a failure. And we know that these market mechanisms do not work to actually stop biodiversity loss. Mm -hmm. Biodiversity offsets and credits are essentially based on the premise that it's okay to destroy biodiversity, so long as you can supposedly compensate for it elsewhere. So this, we feel, is a wrong mindset, a wrong approach Uh, to biodiversity loss, to halting biodiversity loss.
0: I get the sense there's a lot of shape-shifting happening in terms of law, let's just say the corporate colonial monolith. And, you know, it's more complicated than that. But you talked about nature-based solutions, for example, or, you know, we... Right now, we're in Canada, where we have a Prime Minister who mentions a lot of rhetoric around Indigenous rights and reconciliation, for example. Um, today is very different than, let's say, in the 1990s, when a lot of colonial forces or you know, oil and gas companies, you mentioned Total, for example, or BP, are using a lot of this language. This is not very new, but I think in terms of trying to understand and decode what's actually going down at like a negotiation, like what was happening in Montreal at COP15, biodiversity negotiations, can you talk about the importance of of thinking critically about this trend we're seeing, about the use of these discourses to cover up, whether it's offsets, but also beyond that, just sort of um, the heater involved in this type of language just any reflections on coming to how do we come to terms with that when the language you know let's say all these corporations now in Canada or universities are doing land acknowledgements but they're not addressing the colonial infrastructure mm-hmm.
1: you know yeah I think unfortunately we often see the co-optation of terms uh, and, and so we have to interrogate them closely mm-hmm. to see what the real meanings are uh, behind them Um, I think, you know, when we look at the biodiversity crisis, of course we cannot, as I I said uh, at the start, we cannot divorce it from reflections on actually the ecological debt that is owed to developing countries who contain most of the world's biodiversity and the ecological debt to indigenous peoples and local communities who have been stewarding biodiversity for centuries. And we know from the scientific evidence in the better way, um, it best the uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystems uh, Services has very clearly said that biodiversity is best best conserved in the lands and territories of indigenous peoples. Uh, you know, and and this this is the scientific evidence backs this up, right? Mm-hmm. So at the CBD, uh, we, are, we are also trying to, to raise this issue mm-hmm. and change the narrative. Mm-hmm. Because what you see sometimes in the mainstream media, for example, uh, in the questions of financing, for example, mm-hmm. uh, the developing countries are asking for more finance, right? Uh, to say that, look, we have the burden we, of implementation because biodiversity is in our countries, we also have now an increased burden of monitoring and reporting and review and being accountable to these targets. Mm-hmm. Of course, we want countries to be accountable, mm-hmm. but we don't see the commensurate um, financial resources being directed uh, to the developing countries and to uh, Indigenous peoples mm-hmm. and local communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we saw in, for example, uh, the biggest fight, I would, or one of the biggest fights at these negotiations mm-hmm. that have just happened was around precisely this issue, right? And the thing is, uh, the figures on the table uh, that have been agreed uh, for developed to provide to developing countries is 20 to 30 billion US dollars per year. When we're calling for the mobilization of at least 200 billion US dollars per year to fill a financing gap of 700 billion US dollars a year, right? So these amounts are very paltry uh, and they are not enough. But when we take a step back and look at the larger ecological debt that is owed uh, to developing countries and to indigenous peoples and local communities. This we know, um, you know from the time of colonialism till now uh, is much, much larger. So it's not about begging for money. It's not about you know, developing countries saying you know, bang, putting out a begging bowl, but it's really about justice. It's really about righting the wrongs of the past. It's really about saying that, look, you know, we know even from recent analysis that the resource flows, the net drain of resource flows from developing to developed countries. One study, for example, estimated this at US dollars, $242 trillion cumulative, Mm -hmm. right? So that is huge. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have to see this in that bigger picture, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know of 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 the the legacy of colonialism, uh, the resource extraction that has happened uh, from developed, but largely developing countries, biodiversity to prop up an unjust system that still mm-hmm. perpetuates today. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Making a connection between um, the uh, struggle against the inequality of structural debt, mm-hmm. right? For example. Um, People will remember protests against the World Bank and the IMF. Um, People will remember uh, mobilizations against the inequality of free trade agreements, right? And that whole context of thinking about the structural issues of global inequality. In recent years, especially during the pandemic, there's been this shift towards identifying these structural issues. Like a lot of people using social media will talk about, um, you know, at least here in this context, uh, issues like indigenous reconciliation or land back or the structural racism. Um, Your work really looks at these issues on a fundamental structural issue in regards to biodiversity and climate justice. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the connection between thinking about the very like sort of awareness that exists today about structural injustice on an individual level and how it plays out on these systematic sort of international levels of protocol, right? Because like celebrities today are talking all this woke language, which is a, an opening, but that's very different from getting into the, the, you know, the very specifics of these struggles.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, you're you're right. Uh, this kind of Analysis hasn't yet permeated the CBD, unfortunately. We've tried to raise these issues. There were some proposals from uh, a small number of developing countries uh, to talk about the issue of debt. We know that um, the levels of debt distress today, particularly after mm-hmm. the pandemic, mm-hmm. are 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 huge. Yeah. I mean, this has been you know stated by the IMF, the World Bank. And we know that high levels of debt servicing actually reduces the fiscal fiscal space to invest in protecting biodiversity mm-hmm. because a large proportion of government spending is currently being directed to payment of foreign debts.
0: Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, I can provide some examples um, here. I mean, at the moment, developing countries' debt is estimated at $11 trillion. The servicing of that debt is estimated at $3.4 trillion annually. And recent um, estimates have said that in 2022, low-income, indebted nations' debt servicing, this is just a debt servicing, yeah. exceeds 170% of social spending on average, right? And the nations currently in debt default um, that represents twice the budget allocation for social spending. Yeah. So we see that, you know, I mean, let alone biodiversity spending. Sure, sure. We're talking about health, about mm-hmm. uh, education, mm-hmm. about the services that you know the public mm-hmm. interest services that government, the public goods that governments are supposed to provide. So if that, if the de- developing countries are drowning in debt, their hands are tied. Yeah. They can't. How can they invest in biodiversity mm-hmm. protection? Right. Mm-hmm. So these are structural issues that need to be. Address mm-hmm. um, And these conversations are of course happening in different fora, but right. we need to bring them into the CBD as well. Mm-hmm. We heard on the floor, a couple of countries mentioned the issue of debt, but it hasn't made it into the text, unfortunately, mm-hmm. because there could be, for example, and there mm-hmm. was a, a, a request to the executive secretary of the CBD to actually do a study uh on the implications of debt and austerity, yeah. because they are linked, mm-hmm. uh, on implementation mm-hmm. of the CBD. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that language was kicked out. You mm-hmm. know, there was also proposals, for example, to consider the issue of debt cancellation and the longstanding civil society call for a fair multilateral um, debt restructuring mechanism. Yeah. Right, uh, and you may say, well, you know, what's this got to do with the CBD? Right Because we are here we are at the multilateral environmental uh, treaty, but the fact is that if these structural issues are not addressed mm-hmm. adequately, mm-hmm. then how are countries going to be able to to address um, biodiversity loss
0: mm-hmm. and these these are obviously structural issues that are rooted in institutions that are colonial institutions yeah. um, just just to go back to the point about the IMF and the World Bank I mean based in Washington, D.C. I guess just finally thinking about, I remember in the the protests here, um, there was that link between thinking critically of, you know, this whole process as colonial, but you're fighting in these negotiations. Why is it important also to be present? You've made a choice to be there, the Third World Network. And that's not, that's obviously very difficult, very challenging. So this is my last question. Um, There's mobilizations on the streets all around the world. Why also has it been a priority for you to be in the bracket (laughs) fights?
1: Well, I think, you know, it's, if we're going to change the system, we -hmm. need to do it at all levels, right? Mm -hmm. It's critical to have the mobilizations outside, it's critical to have civil society voice. Mm -hmm. But Many of these things happen in these closed rooms, of course, in the negotiations. Okay. I think had civil society not been there, had indigenous peoples not been there, had the Women's Caucus not been there, or the youth not been there, been there we would have even gotten probably a worse tax than, than it is. So we need to tell governments that we are watching. We are there as observers, of course, and we can, of course, talk to the delegates and and try and influence the text in a better direction. Mm -hmm. And I think we see some of the results of that. As I said, good language on, strong language on protecting uh, and respect for the rights of Indigenous peoples Mm and local communities, Mm -hmm. which we've not seen elsewhere. We've got calls to protect um, environmental uh, human rights defenders, Mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a question of, it's a slower process, of course, mm-hmm. but it's a mm-hmm. question of still trying to push things forward mm-hmm. uh, in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So it's important to have, to have both um, inside and outside strategies to be able to deal uh, with this. Because I think ultimately we have the same goals mm-hmm. um, and we just have to use, I think, all avenues available to try and make it a better uh, you know, uh, system. Yeah.
0: Respect. Thank you. Okay, thank so you very
1: much. much
0: for having me on the show. That was great. That was a conversation with Lim Lee Ching of the Third World Network. Uh, it's an international organization based in Malaysia, uh, which was present in the context of the meetings around the International Biodiversity Convention that was discussed in Montreal uh, in the context of the COP15 meetings. I really encourage people to check out the work of Third World Network. Uh, you can find them at tyn.my. This has been Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph. We broadcast once a week and share a new episode. We are airing on CKUT ninety point three FM on Wednesdays at eleven, in Geogiage, Montreal, on CGLO sixteen ninety AM at one PM on Tuesdays, also in Montreal on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg at 8 a.m. on Tuesdays, that is in the Treaty 1 Territory of the Métis Nation, on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at 11.30 a.m. on Wednesdays, and also on CFUV 101.9 FM on wednesdays at 9 a.m in victoria british columbia you can find us on spotify and apple podcasts our archives are at soundcloud.com free city radio i'll go out with a bit of music today from a cosmos a great uh, artist based in berlin Um, and thanks for listening we'll be back next week take care